Oh man, thank you guys for that gift. Um, thank you for the gift of that song. I don't know if, I think the refrain, like repeating it, I don't know. I, I think some of us have experienced miracles that maybe like to the whole world feel like a miracle. You've had a diagnosis reversed or something like that happen in your life. But for many of us, we wonder, is God really a God of miracles in our life? Can that be true for me? What does that look like? Does God still work like that in our world? And what I want to propose to you guys today that we're going to begin to look at and unpack over the next few weeks is that I think that God works in very ordinary circumstances in really miraculous ways. And that he has an opportunity for all of us in our relationships particularly to experience a supernatural event. And that supernatural event is that you are not the same person that you were before. And that in a relationship that might be difficult or a place where you might feel like, man, we keep missing each other or I'm so frustrated in this way, God can actually change you. Like moment by moment, you can be changed. And I call that a miracle because anytime we're able to break out of a pattern that's been in place for a really long time, and we have a moment where we actually are able to adjust course and change direction and move into more of who God really desires for us to be, a place of, of flourishing and of joy and of peace. I call that a miracle. And that's why the book's called The Miracle Moment. It's about that idea of how God is changing us moment by moment, particularly in his workshop, his classroom, that is our actual life, our ordinary life the people and circumstances that we're in. And man, um, this book was, was a dream and was planned before the pandemic. It was written during the pandemic. And it was released at a time where I've never seen so much division and discouragement and disconnection in our relationships as today. And maybe you guys have experienced that yourselves. I think about the people that I see, their lives look great and it seems like everything is fine, but then I have closer conversations with people. And even um, as I was looking around and saying hi to you guys this morning, I thought, you know, all of us have a place somewhere where we're like, man, I wish I, I just want more out of this relationship or this relationship's unreconciled or we have these patterns of frustration and I don't know how to break out of them. And I just want you to know there's hope that we can be changed and that we can be different. Not every place in every relationship, not every relationship might change, but you can be changed in the process. And that's what we're going to spend the next few weeks on. But before we do that, um, I just want to take a moment of pastoral privilege and let you know um, I'm part of the team here at Ward. But before I was part of this church and came, you know, frequently, I come like every quarter, um, I came to General Assembly five years ago. That was the first time that I connected at Ward Church that I was here. And I want you to know I was blown away by the hospitality. I am not making this up. I just thought about it as the announcement was being made. I remember walking into the building and being like, like, who are these people? They're so friendly. And they're all here at like 11 a.m. on a Wednesday. What is happening? And, and you guys were very, like, very effusive with the water bottle specifically. I remember that. And the directions and the kindness in the parking lot from beginning to end. It was noticeable to me as a person who was just a teaching elder in this denomination who was coming to the church for the first time. So I truly want you guys to know that you're, you made an impact on me, one of those thousand people who were here. And so if that's a place that you like to serve, I just want to encourage you guys to sign up for it because it really did. It was very noticeable 
to me and remarkable. So I'm grateful for the hospitality of this place and of this church. So back to the point. Okay, so miracle moment. We're going to set this up over the next few weeks, um, but I really get to set us up today with some of the preconditions that I think are necessary in order for us to actually change in our relationships and, and really what the biblical foundation is for that idea that God is calling us to more in our relationships. He's calling us to connection and to come together with depth rather than allowing just the, the ordinary stuff of life to move us into distance. What does it look like to actually come together toward depth rather than in distance? And we're going to look at a passage right now that kind of sets that up for us. But before we do, I want to tell you guys a story. Um, I wrote a life list. I don't know if you guys have ever heard this. Some people call it a bucket list. Some people have very specific sort of topics. But I did that about 12 years ago, I would say. I really felt like, you know, there's a lot out there that says that if you want to change, you need to write things down. You need to actually say what you want to see happen, the goals that you have. So I wrote this really long list of all these things that I hoped I might be able to do. And this was 12 years ago. And I, I want you guys to know I had never um, seen a female even preach on a Sunday. And 12 years ago, I wrote on my list, I hope one day I can preach on a Sunday morning. So it's, it's fun to be able to stand here and preach with you guys um, this morning. But one of the other things I wrote on that list was I wanted to do an adventure race. Now, an adventure race, some of you guys may have seen the documentary about adventure racing. It was called The World's Toughest Race. It's like a six-day race that people take on that um, is about navigating to checkpoints and all these different ways to move point to point. It's crazy. And I, I didn't necessarily, well, I kind of wanted to do a race like that, but I knew that I wanted to like at least attempt something like that. And so for my 40th birthday, my husband got, uh, my husband and I got bikes for our birthday and we started to prepare to do an adventure race. And you guys have heard me talk about this before, if you've been here before. And the first race that we did was going to be eight hours. Okay. So it was not six days long. It was eight hours long, but that's still a long time. That's still a long time. And it was a lot of training and preparation. We were going to be on a team of four to take on this challenge. An adventure race is like part scavenger hunt, part just foolishness. Like that's, that's what it is, but it's supposedly fun. And it was fun, but we got ready. We prepared for months. We had to get the right gear. We wanted to make sure that we were ready physically for an eight hour experience. There was a lot about like what you needed to have with you, the emergency stuff that you needed to have with you. There was no plan for food. So I was like really concerned about the food situation. Like what are we going to do for eight hours with four of us? And what can we pack in our packs to carry? Because we were going to be on a boat. We were going to be on a bike. We were going to be hiking through the woods. So lots and lots of preparing for this moment. And the moment finally comes. We're going to do our first adventure race. We're so excited. There's four of us. And one of the things that happens, they give you a map just one hour before. So you don't know where you're going. You get the map and then you start to sort of plot out your coordinates, your checkpoints. So we're ready. We're getting ready to go. There's about 50 other teams. We're in a parking lot of a state park. And we're like, ready, set, go. And we're so excited. We start going out of that state park. We go down the driveway. We're just about to cross the road into the race. And our bike chain breaks. I'm not going to say whose bike chain it was. It was not mine, okay? It's four of us. The bike chain, the, no, the bike chain did not fall off. You all have had a bike chain fall off. The bike chain broke. I just broke apart. So we're, we're like, hmm, 
So we start unpacking all of our gear to find the thing that will fix the bike chain. But of course, we don't have the thing that will fix the bike chain. And in general, I do find adventure race people to be very hospitable and helpful. But I think something about us still being in the parking lot made them think it's probably better to not help them. <laughs> like, it would probably be better for them to, to not actually go ahead and do this course. So we sit there and we're like, what are we going to do? <laughs> And about an hour and a half goes by. Finally, someone who probably had already gotten 10 checkpoints just came back by. They had the piece we needed, the tool we needed to actually repair the chain. And we did actually get to do the race. It was super fun. We have done it again. We have not had a bike chain break again since that time. But I thought about that story because even though we were prepared and we had a lot of knowledge and we felt trained and we had done the things that we thought we were supposed to do, even though we were prepared, it was actually ineffective when we got to reality. It was actually unproductive and ineffective when it hit reality. And there's a passage in scripture that talks about this idea of what it looks like to have an effective and productive life in Christ. And that effective and productive life has more to do with just, it's not just about knowledge. It's not just about what we learn here when we're talking in church. It's not just about what happens when we receive knowledge through our head, but much more. So let's look at that passage from 2 Peter. It's going to be on the screens for you. 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. So notice that there is knowledge. There is knowledge necessary. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Now we get a connection to this first thought. For this very reason, so the very reason is everything we just heard. For the reason of living a godly life, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to your goodness knowledge and to your knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We live in a world that idolizes effectiveness and productivity. And we have a passage in scripture right now where God is saying, listen, if you want to experience a godly life, then you are going to have to make an effort to add to your knowledge in a way that impacts your actions. And there's going to be these layers of attributes that you're going to make every effort to pursue. And as you pursue those attributes, as you add to that knowledge, the culmination of that is going to be love. It is going to move you toward mutual affection. It's going to move you toward love. Knowledge itself is not enough. Knowledge plus directed effort equals a godly life. The knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ plus directed effort leads us to a godly life. Now, what I'm not saying that you have to earn your salvation by your work. We know that's a works-based righteousness. We are not about that. That is not what God is about. It's because of God's love that we can even come into this place to consider it. But God does say that he asks us to participate with him 
in what he's doing in our life. Just because God's grace is sufficient as it is for my salvation doesn't mean that God isn't asking me to walk with him. Passage after passage in scripture invites us to participate with the Spirit in what the Spirit is doing in your life. That we can know that God loves us and we can also direct our effort toward love. We actually know that that's how we are moving toward God is when we're moving toward love. This list of qualities of directed effort all culminate in this love. 1 John 4, 16. So we know and rely on the love God has for us. That's the basis of our salvation. That's what we can rest in. We know and rely on the love God has for us. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. You see, God is always moving us toward love. And I think you guys know that. I think you believe that. I know I know and believe that too. But oftentimes there's a gap that we can get tripped up in where we can know with knowledge that God is love, that we know and rely on the love God has for us, that God's asking us to love. But then those people are so frustrating. Those people in your life the misses are so real. The disappointments are so deep. The way we feel like we can't do conflict is so visceral that we stay in this gap between the knowledge of what it looks like to move toward love and then our actual experience, like the experience of using tools to help us actually move toward love, especially in those relationships that can be confusing to us. I know this because it's my own experience. It's how I've experienced life, that there's a gap between what I desire and what I hope for in relationships and what I'm actually experiencing. Now, that gap might not feel um, as disturbing to you. There might be seasons in time where you might have a difficult relationship with someone where it feels like an everyday thing. But even if you feel like your life is at peace, oftentimes there's a place where we're like, oh, I just wish there was more depth. I, I wish we felt more connected. Or maybe you feel like people around you wish for more from you, but you're not really sure how to do that. You don't, you don't know how they're experiencing you. But yet there's this biblical foundation for this idea that in directed effort, God is moving us more and more toward this kind of love. I wrote the miracle moment because of that experience in my own life where I'm like, I know I want this, but I keep experiencing this. And a lot of people that I'm with also have the same experience. Particularly one of the, one of the things that really drove this book was I was working with teams of people and they were having troubles with trust or some struggle, and I would hear from each individual person, much like I did in marriage counseling, but this was in a work environment, I would hear from each individual person, and they would tell me about a moment where they felt missed or frustrated or confused or disappointed, and I would hear about that moment from different angles and realize, ah, oh, everybody wants the same thing, but we're missing some of the tools to get there. We don't, we don't quite know how to do something different. And the patterns that we've lived in are so deep that it will take a miracle to actually break out of them. And I believe those miracles are possible moment by moment. A miracle moment is the moment after you feel frustrated, disappointed, or distant. It's a moment in a conflict where you choose to respond differently than that first moment you were in. It's a moment where you feel that miss and you actually know about a way to lean in to the relationship instead of choosing distance. 
And I believe that this is what God is about for us when we think about the idea of making every effort to grow in our self-control, in our godliness, in our mutual affection, in our love, that God is actually inviting us to let our life be his classroom where he's teaching us what it looks like to live in love, to live differently, to move differently through the world because of Jesus in you. That's the gift of the miracles that I believe are in front of us. So I want to run through just five um, sort of preconditions for a life that's effective, holy, and loving in Christ. The five things that you have to be ready for if you're interested in taking this journey. If you think, yes, I would like that in my life. I would like to feel more connected to my children. I would like my marriage to feel deeper. I would like to be a better leader at work. I'd like to be just less frustrated in general with the way I move through the world. If any of those are true for you, I believe these are the five things that have to be in place before. And I'm going to run through these quickly. Probably one or two might really apply to you. That's okay. It doesn't need to be all five. So just listen up and listen for where you might find yourself in this journey. You ready? Five laws of miracles. First law, nice is bad. Now a lot of people are like, what? Nice is bad? Nice is bad when it comes to intimate relationships. Nice is not depth. Nice is great for the grocery store clerk. Nice is great for courteous exchange. But what I mean by nice is that when we are agreeable to a fault, when we allow others to define us, when we avoid hard things, when we choose to go along to get along because we are scared of disappointing other people or we're scared of actually entering into conflict, then nice is usually working against us. It's not working for us. And if you don't believe me, I will tell you that the word nice comes from the Latin word that means stupid. It's actually where the word began. So maybe we should just let it go. Truly nice is fine for courteous exchanges, but nice won't get you very far when it comes to the kind of active, fierce love that God has for us and that God asks us for ha to have for other people. If we're more scared of conflict than we are of actually moving toward love, then we're, we're getting out of alignment with our mission in Christ. Jesus wasn't scared of conflict. Jesus had it and he modeled it. So we too have to know that there's going to be times where we have to lean in, where we have to engage, where that fear of what we've, we're fearing a no, or we're fearing disappointment, it keeps us from being our full self. Now this isn't true for everyone, but this is true for a lot of us. If you need one more example of why you should believe me that nice does not make depth of relationship, I want you to think of your favorite teacher that you ever had. When I talk to my kids about their favorite teacher and I think about my favorite teacher, nice is not the first word that my kids say. Now they might say loving, they'll say passionate, but generally the teachers that they remember and the teachers I remember demanded a lot from me. They wanted a lot. They thought that they deserved respect. They asked me to work really hard and because of that, it was a meaningful relationship of growth. You see, nice is bad in our deepest relationships because nice gets in the way of passionate, active love that believes the best in each other and is willing to lean in in times of conflict. Okay, second one. Second precondition for a miracle is that we have to believe in chaos before order. And what I mean by this is that the way we engage and relate to people is long-held patterns. Most of them come from our childhood. 
The way we engage particularly in conflict is often long-held patterns that we've been in for a really long time. And if we're going to start to do something different, it's going to feel really uncomfortable. It's going to feel chaotic at first. It's not going to feel um, normal. It's going to feel awkward. We're going to feel like we've got to do different things in a different way, and we're not going to feel good at it necessarily. Because of that, it can feel very confusing. It reminds me of when, if you ever clean out your closet or a closet or a pantry or a fridge or any place that lots of things hide, if you've ever taken everything out and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, it's a total mess. And when God comes in to reorder our soul, when we, for the first time or for a new season, say, yes, Lord, I want you to teach me to be a person of love, when God comes in and the Spirit begins to reorder our soul, it can feel pretty chaotic at first. So what we can do is get comfortable with being uncomfortable, get comfortable with trying a few different things in our relationships, and if we can get comfortable, it will be easier to move toward that growth. This happened to the disciples all the time. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus starts to talk about what's going to happen to him. In verse 44, he says, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of the men, hands of men. But the disciples didn't understand what it meant. They didn't grasp it, and they were afraid to ask Jesus about it. In John chapter 13, Jesus washes their feet. That would have been disconcerting. That would have been a weird experience, very uncomfortable. It's not what Jesus should do. Their teacher, their ruler, their leader shouldn't be a servant. He washes their feet, and then he tells them that someone's going to betray him. And after he said this, Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. And the disciples stared at each other at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple who Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. And Simon Peter said, hey, ask him who he means. You see, this deconstruction, this confusion, this chaos, it's a part of our experience as humans. And we go through seasons where comfort will not be the number one thing that God is after for you. And I think we're all in this a bit right now. We've deconstructed a lot of maybe what we believe about our country, about church, about our community, about our family, about our circle. We may find ourselves in that place. And oftentimes, when we come into confusion, what we want to run to is safety and comfort. But what I want to invite you to is that confusion is a place that we can run into the hands of our loving Father that we can know and rely on the love that he has for us. And for many of us, it just means being okay, staying uncomfortable for a bit as God begins to teach us what he has for us in that place. Okay, number three, curious, not condemning. This is the one that has meant the most to me in my own life, in my own relationships, is what is it like for me to be curious, not condemning? Curious about other people's reactions, curious about how people perceive me, curious about my own self, about the own thing, my own things that I'm experiencing, rather than condemning, rather than shaming, rather than going to guilt. What is it like to just be interested, to be a scientist of my own life? Romans 8 verse 1 says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I truly believe that our earthly life is about believing this more and more as we go through our years, to believe more and more that there is no, as in zero percent, condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, condemnation is a word we don't use all the time, so it might be hard to connect what that might look like. So here is an example to me of what that looks like. It's like a blame cycle that we get in. 
Let's say that you're frustrated at, here, let's say you're frustrated at someone and that frustration builds until you snap and you snap with a harsh word or a comment or you gossip or you criticize or you condemn them in your heart. You have a moment, right, of your own sin and then after that moment of sin comes blame and that blame is usually like, well, if they would listen to me when I tell them what to do, this would never have happened or that blame turns inward. And you turn it in on yourself and you're like, I can't believe I'm the kind of person who shouts at my kids. And then that blame becomes shame. Now we hide. Now we hide from ourselves. Now we hide from that feeling and we don't want to feel it and we try to escape from it. Or we beat ourselves up about it over and over again and then the cycle just continues. What if instead of being in that cycle, you feel the frustration, you snap, and then you slow it all down and you ask yourself, I wonder what was going on with me? What was happening in me? What happened right before that moment? What happened after it? Talk about in the book, rewinding the game tape. Like sitting down to be your own coach and asking yourself, okay, in that moment, what was happening? What's something deeper that might be going on that caused that to happen that I might actually need to address? Because that's what it is to be curious, not condemning about ourselves and then about other people as well. Hey, I, real, I recognize you seem, to, you seem to, to sort of shrink away in our last conversation. I'm curious, how did you experience me? Now that, that's varsity level. That's a whole different level of love to engage like that, curious, not condemning. Number four, small is big. Small is big. Small changes on the dial make an incredibly big difference. We know this, behavioral science talk about this with habits. Habits change a little bit at a time. Very, very small changes on the dial can make a very, very big difference. Jesus was in to small things. In Matthew chapter 25, he told this story about those who would be blessed by the Father when they came to heaven. And he specifically says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. And the people there are like, wait, 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 when did we see you? When did we visit with you? When did we invite you in? And Jesus says, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. That's a small thing. That's hospitality, that's welcoming, right? That's a small thing. When Jesus would bring little children, he would say, anyone who welcomes a little child welcomes me. That's a small thing. You see, so often I think we're looking for signs and wonders for big things, but I think God's like, what if I worked in your life in a small thing? What if you, what if you made one change in a small thing? So here's a super practical one small thing that I've experienced and worked with clients on, and this is it. If you see pain, stop. If you're in a relationship with someone and you're experiencing that that person is experiencing something painful, they seem anxious, they seem upset, they seem hurt. Stop. Slow everything down. Validate and affirm. Wow, you seem disappointed. You seem anxious. You seem frustrated. How are you? So often we're running through life so fast that we miss pain signals from people that we love who are looking for a moment of comfort. They're not looking for a solution. They're not looking for your advice. They're actually looking for someone to notice that they're in pain. Have you been in that place before where you were experiencing some sort of hidden pain, you were feeling like you needed comfort or validation, and someone you love just missed it? They just didn't see it. That's a hard place to be in. 
But yet God calls us to be people who have eyes to see the little ways that God calls us to love people. And by the way, that might happen on your airplane or in the grocery store or at the post office too. You know, when you ask God to give you eyes to see pain, he will show it to you. And as small as big change in our life is to be people who are present enough to see somebody for the pain that they're in. And that God would also give us that with our loved ones, that they would see us when we're in pain as well. Finally, hope is necessary. Hope is necessary. Hope is, this is a quote from Vaclav Havel. Hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. Even in painful things, and I'm aware in the room there's always pain. There's always painful things. There's unreconciled things. There's relationships that are difficult. There's ways that you don't feel like things can be different in your life. But even in that, what is it like to have hope? Just to have hope that God is still at work, that we can rely on God's love for us, that in the things that are unreconciled or still confused, God is still with you, and God is still present, and God still desires to meet your needs. Even in painful things, something beautiful can grow. Even in the hardest circumstances, there are hopeful things. Hope is not toxic positivity. It's not trying to spin everything into certainty. There is pain and suffering and unreconciled things in our life that cannot be easily explained and should not be minimized. But hope continues to believe that confusing and painful can coexist with wonderful and beautiful. Hope believes that love can continue to abound to us and through us, even when we are weary, even when we are not sure that we can go on. Hope does not mean that everything on this earth will always be restored. It does not mean the guy always gets the girl. It does not mean the prayer always leads to the specific kind of healing we want. But it does mean that we can hope in a God who is with us, who does not give up on us, and who is always, always abounding in love to us. His love for you will not run out. It is never in short supply. His love is the proof that we are safe to hope. His love is the proof that we are safe to try. His love is the proof that we are safe to change. We know and rely on the love God has for us. The message version of Colossians 3.14 says, regardless of what else you put on, wear love. It's your basic all-purpose garment. Never be without it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are opening up this idea that you desire to do miracles in our life in ordinary circumstances. God, that in these little moments that we have all through the day that can wear us down, that in those moments, God, you are inviting us to participate with you in the way that you're calling us to a godly life, in the way that you are transforming us more and more into the image of Christ. For those of us in the room who can think of a relationship right now that this applies to, God, I pray that your love would abound, that you would give us discernment and wisdom, that you would give us the desire to forgive, to be humble, to seek reconciliation, to seek to understand, Lord, wherever we have the opportunity to move, God, I pray that we would take that action. 
And Lord, we, we, we want to rely on the fact that you love us and that it's because of your love for us that you call us to more. God, that we can rest in that and expect and desire miracle moments in our life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.